Welcome to the Medical Mnemonist Podcast, brought to you by Med School Coach. Each episode, take a journey into the top techniques for medical mnemonics, study skills, board exam tips, and accelerated learning in higher education. Now, here's your host, Chase DeMarco. On today's episode of the Medical Nemesis, we have Dr. Megan Samaraki, assistant professor at Rhode Island College and holds a PhD in cognitive psychology. She has numerous publications on retrieval practice, dual coding, and other topics in the six strategies of effective learning that we'll cover in this episode. Dr. Samaraki, good morning. Hi, uh, thanks for having me. I really, I really appreciate getting to talk to students and educators, people who are interested in learning and medical education is near and dear to my heart since my uh, little sister is just about to finish medical school. Yes, as we were talking about that earlier, congratulations to your sister and getting matched and uh, nice stressful situation finally coming to an end, life coming back to normal. <laughs> yeah, hopefully. hopefully. <laughs> so Let's start today with a brief discussion of the podcast that you have as well, the Learning Scientist podcast, which was actually recommended by one of my first interviewees, Alex Mullen. And I find it a a very useful podcast on educational psychology, cognitive psychology, and the topics you discuss there that could be very beneficial to students. So how did that begin? Yeah, so the Learning Scientist podcast fell out of the larger Learning Scientist project. So the Learning Scientists is just a group of cognitive psychologists. Right now, there are um, four female PhDs on the team, which is really awesome. We started the group and started to create resources and, you know, the we have a blog and we have posters and other resources teachers can use really just because we started to notice that while we're doing a ton of research on learning and how we can apply cognitive psychology to educational settings, we're not doing as much as we could be or should be to bridge the gap and sort of try to produce what we like to call bidirectional communication between those who are doing the research in this area and those who are actually practicing in the area. And of course, we practice in the area too. We have our own students. So I think right now I have about 90 of them uh, this semester across three classes, relatively small classes for university, but that's only 90 students. And there are so many educators and students out there. And we really just felt like writing journal articles and making recommendations at the end for educators was not nearly enough. Uh, And so we really tried to start opening lines of communication and talking with teachers and educators about what they're doing in their classrooms, what they need, what will work, what might not work so well, you know, that sort of thing. And so we created learningscientists.org and started producing resources. And then at some point, I just had this kind of fun thought that it would be really exciting to do a podcast. So we, you know, we write and then we teach and teaching is talking and working with students. And so the podcast really is kind of just sitting down with um, interviewees who are doing research or educators or just one another and chatting about the science of learning. It's re- so it's really fun. I like it a lot. And that's a great point with the bi-directional communication because a lot of educators are, especially in the medical field, MDs or PhDs, but they're not really trained in how to educate. And similarly for students, we are students for a long time, but we're not taught how to learn. So I find a lot of this material is going to be extremely enlightening, extremely useful for the audience. Yeah, yeah. I, 
truly even, I mean, cognitive psychologists are not always trained how to teach. We just happen to be uh, researchers in that area. And so, you know, based on our research, we can, we can figure out what's going to be best to do. And it really shouldn't just be us who knows that information and publishing it in a journal article really just isn't enough. I mean, access to journal articles is a whole big issue. And then on top of that, it's written for other cognitive psychologists. And as it should be, we need to be able to write the detailed methodology so that we can replicate and you know peer review one another and make sure that the science is moving forward. But then there needs to be something else where we're all communicating with one another. Good point. Good point. So I think the the most important thing for students to learn here might be the six strategies for effective learning that you discuss on the podcast and on the website. And could you discuss what those six strategies are? Yeah. So the, the six strategies fell out of a report that was commissioned by the Institute for Education Sciences, IES. I think in 2007, a number of cognitive psychologists, including Hal Paschler and others, were asked to go through the literature and basically identify what strategies for learning do we have a lot of evidence for to suggest that they're going to work? What strategies do we have maybe only a little bit of evidence for? And then what strategies do we have a lot of evidence for to suggest that they do not work? So repeated reading, for example, we have a lot of evidence that just sitting and reading through your notes over and over again doesn't produce very much learning. And so they produce this report and the six strategies are basically the strategies that the cognitive psychologists on this team identified as having a lot of support for. So we know pretty well that these six strategies work and two in particular have tons and tons of evidence of spacing and retrieval practice. They're also really old in terms of when they were quote unquote discovered. And I can talk about that in a little bit. In, gosh, I think 2016, the National Council for Teaching Quality did a whole report where they took those six strategies and looked for evidence of those strategies in teacher training textbooks. So basically the textbooks that are used in university settings to teach future teachers, K through 12 teachers, how to teach. And they found that the strategies really are not making their way into these textbooks. And so if they're not making their way into the textbooks, you can make the assumption that they're not making their way into the classroom. And if they're not making their way into the classroom, right, this goes on and on. And of course, you know, some teachers are using these strategies in the classroom. Maybe they just don't realize it. In any case, we sort of have a problem here. And so we focused on these six strategies because of those reports. I remember when I was doing my PhD work in educational psychology, I was looking into spacing, retrieval, and interleaving, and it was the first time I'd ever heard of it. So I was kind of shocked that that had never come in any of the textbooks for the courses or any of the the coursework. It was from independent studies that I started to become aware of it. That was just the theory of it. I didn't know how to actually implement it into a practice at the time, which is unfortunate for med school afterwards, but that's a whole other story. And spacing and retrieval practice are not new. So as far back as I know, the first paper that discussed retrieval practice is from 1909. And then Ebbinghaus um, was the quote unquote discoverer of spacing. He's the first memory researcher um, that we know of as well. And he was doing his work in um, the late 1800s, 1885 or so, I believe is when he was actually teaching himself nonsense syllables across days and days and then tracking his progress. It sounds really tedious, but yeah, he discovered this spacing principle. So they're not new. We just are not doing a very good job at communicating and also listening, listening to teachers and and working together. 
if I'm remembering correctly, Ebenhaus used that research to discover the quote unquote forgetting curve, correct? Yes. So these types of techniques are specifically used to help fight the forgetting curve, to help you remember longer term, which is mm -hmm. precisely what we need in medicine. Yeah. Yeah. Trying to, I mean, forgetting happens. And so trying to slow forgetting is is basically what, what this is all about. So a lot of times we focus a whole lot about trying to cram as much information into our heads as possible, but really it's about, can we get it back out? Can we use that information and do we have it sort of at our fingertips? Is it accessible? So I, I like to use the analogy with my, um, when my, when I'm teaching memory and cognitive psychology, I tell my students, you know, when, when the building closes, the computer lab with, you know, your print, your ability to print is still there. You just can't get in. So a lot of your memories and the things that you're learning are somewhere in your head. You just can't always access them. And so it's not about just getting it in there. It's also about being able to, you know, have the key to actually get into the computer lab so that you can print your homework and, and those kinds of things, accessibility. Yeah. And that, that's very difficult when you're taking board exams, for instance, or you're under a lot of stress, you have thousands, tens of thousands of different factoids you need to try to remember. Okay. So for the audience, can we just go over briefly what each of these techniques actually is, what it entails? Yeah. So I'll start with spacing and retrieval since we've already talked about them and they're the ones that have the most evidence to support their effectiveness. They're also the most flexible. So spacing is this idea that uh, repetition is good, but you should space those repetitions out over time. So you can compare this to massing practice or cramming. We are just repeating the thing over and over and over again. So this is kind of what's happening if a student has you know, notes from a lecture and is just repeatedly reading through those notes over and over again, that would be massing or cramming. The idea with spacing is just to introduce space in between. And, you know, we could go, we could drive ourselves crazy trying to figure out exactly how much space is the right amount of space. But the idea is that you need to start to forget it a little bit just a little bit so that then when you reintroduce the idea and you go over it again, it's like you're kind of reteaching it to yourself a little bit. Now, how much forgetting do you want? Obviously, you don't want to have completely lost it all. A space of an entire year might be too much for some people, although for others that might be fine. It depends on how well you know the material. But in terms of practical application, just introducing some spacing, doing a little bit each day as opposed to waiting and then cramming it all at once. It makes your learning more effective, but it also makes it more efficient. So you can think about spacing it over these days, but it's not necessarily more time. It's just taking the time that you would have spent cramming it all in and spreading that out over time. It seems very comparable to maybe uh, muscles where you could hold a dumbbell up, but it's not going to do that much. You have to let it down and then lift it back up to build that muscle. And we're sort of building a cognitive muscle by letting it go away, then trying actively to retrieve it again or to use it again. Yeah. 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 Although sometimes we worry about saying like memory as a muscle, because it's not like if I memorize a poem, that means now I'm going to be able to better memorize something else. But yeah. Yeah. For in terms of learning that specific information, it, the, um, the weight analogy works really well. Yeah. And then of course, you know, spacing is about when, but what do you do during those spaced repetitions? Uh, well, repeated reading isn't as effective, although spaced reading is better than masked reading. Uh, another strategy that has been shown to be extremely effective is retrieval practice, which is just the idea of bringing information to mind. So putting your course materials away and trying to produce that information in some way. 
it can look really different depending on how you want to retrieve. So you could sit and just take a blank sheet of paper and write out what you can remember. You could sketch and draw diagrams or pictures that go along with it. You could describe and explain to a friend or um, to your dog or to the wall. It doesn't really matter if you're producing that. Um, You could take practice exams or practice tests. That's another way of practicing retrieval. And for a while, we called this the testing effect because tests are a really good example of retrieval, but it doesn't have to be a test. Anything where you're bringing the information to your mind and then ideally producing it in some way. So, you know, writing it, drawing it so you can double check yourself. That's retrieval practice. Okay. Yeah. I always took the testing effect to be separate, even though you can use retrieval in your testing, it doesn't have to be that. So there's overlapping separate topics. Hmm, Yeah. And I think it's a, a great point that you mentioned the the ways you can teach this to someone else, or even if you just talk to your dog or maybe use a, a mind map or some sort of visual to put it out on paper and see how much of it you can recall and the parts that you can't. Now you've identified some of your weaknesses to focus on for future studies. Yeah. And so, yeah, and you mentioned double checking and sort of, you know, looking that feedback can help make the benefits of retrieval practice even bigger. So retrieval practice helps in a ton of different ways. I actually wrote a chapter called the 10 benefits of testing. Uh, we, We were able to find 10, but mainly, I mean, practicing retrieval gives you feedback on what you know and what you don't know, and it makes your next study opportunity more effective and more efficient. But in addition, what I think is really cool is just the act of bringing the information to mind in and of itself directly produces learning. And then you get all of these other indirect benefits, like knowing what you know and what you don't know so that you can allocate your study time more appropriately so that the next time is more efficient. All of those things just sort of pile on to make this an extremely potent strategy to produce long-term and durable learning. Okay. So we have spacing down, we have retrieval down. That's two of the six. What are some of the other topics we'd like to cover? Yeah. So then um, another one that's related to spacing is called interleaving. And in practice, it's difficult to disentangle spacing and interleaving, though we can do this in the lab. Usually if you're engaging in spacing, you might be also doing interleaving. If you're using interleaving, you're probably using spacing. But the idea behind interleaving is just to sort of mix up or jumble up the topics that you are studying. So switching back and forth, as opposed to just doing a whole bunch of one thing and then a whole bunch of another thing. So if we take, trying to think of a medical example, let's say you're studying uh, anatomy of different different parts of the body, or maybe you're studying kind of the cellular makeup of different organs within the body, rather than focusing on one and digging really deep into it and then not switching, you might talk about the heart for a little bit and then switch to the lungs and switch to all these different aspects. And if you're doing the switching, what it does is puts next to one another things that are related but different so that you can sort of start to see the similarities and difference between them so that then later on you're able to better disentangle or discriminate among those ideas. I think a way I've seen this depicted before is let's say you have three different subjects you're studying, subject A, subject B, subject C, where spacing or I guess blocking more accurately would be AAA, BBB, CCC, whereas interleaving would be ABC, ABC, ABC. So you keep switching between the different disciplines or subjects, and it helps you distinguish between the material a little better. 
Yeah. And even better is switching the order. So ABC, CBA, BAC, and so on. Ah. And then one, I mean, one thing to keep in mind, interleaving, we definitely need more, more research in this area. It's not exactly clear yet what exactly should be switched up. So we can make the assumption that probably switching back and forth between uh, learning Spanish and math, going back and forth, back and forth between a math problem and then a Spanish vocabulary word and so on probably isn't going to be as useful and might actually cause more harm and confusion than if you're switching among different types of math problems together. So the heuristic that I like to use is just any time that you would need to be able to discriminate between two things, that's when you should be switching between them. So let's say you're teaching and working with middle school math teachers, and they're teaching the kids how to work with fractions. And so rather than doing adding, 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 and then multiplying, 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 switching between those, because later on, the students are going to need to be able to not just recognize how to multiply fractions, but to recognize when to do which procedure. And that's when switching is the most useful. Okay. So in, in medical school, we have a lot of question banks, Q banks that have everything separated by discipline, or you can have it jumbled together. So it's just randomly generated the order. So it sounds like having it randomly generated is probably going to be more efficient than just studying one discipline at a time and then switching to a new discipline and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And if, I mean, if you think about it, one of the phrases I love to use is that life comes at you interleaved. It's not as though when you're a doctor, you know, they say, okay, today we're going to have all of the cardiac uh, patients and everyone who comes in is going to have the same issue. And you just have to, you know, get through this one issue. And then tomorrow we'll deal with a different issue. It doesn't work that way. You're always trying to, you know, they, people come in with different, different problems, different symptomology, and you have to constantly switch back and forth, especially if you're more of a generalist, switch back and forth between different topics that you've learned, right? So good point. Although I guess maybe to clarify for some students, this might be different than if you have identified a weak point in your studies and you just want to focus on that for the time being until you can raise your, your abilities in that one subject. Yeah, although I will say, so you definitely do want to focus on those areas, but continuing to kind of swap some of the other things in does produce a little bit of spacing for that area. So that should help too. Mm -hmm. um, we can interleave sooner than we think that we can. And what's interesting about this is that when you look at practice, so there's, there's a study by, I think, Taylor and Rohr from around 2010. Forgive me if the reference is off. But they have students learning a bunch of different types of math problems. I think they're fourth graders. And some of them are interleaving and some of them are blocking. And the students who are blocking are getting 100% on during practice, whereas the students who are interleaving are at about 80%. So if you stopped there, you would think, okay, the blocking students have mastered this. They're doing better they quote unquote, know it better. The interleaving isn't as good, but you wait just one day. The students who were getting 100% during blocking one day later are now dropping to like 30 something percent. The students who were interleaving were getting about 80 during practice. And the next day on the test, they get about 76. Wow. So if you, it, and this is true of all of these strategies, they are harder when you're first doing them. They tend to lead to more mistakes. It's just, it's just more difficult. And if you stop there, it feels worse. But when we're talking about long-term, more durable learning, 
those things tend to be better. You just have to wait to see the benefit. And I think that's one of the hardest things because when we're trying to decide what is working best for us and how well we're learning, we're, we're in the moment. Unfortunately, the strategies that feel really difficult and maybe think, oh no, I'm not so confident are what actually lead to better gains down the line. So it sounds like what you're telling me so far is everything I did during med school was wrong. <laughs> well, well, you you probably you maybe spent a little more time than you needed to. These strategies tend to be more efficient. Although I think I think medical school just by the nature of the types of tests that you guys have to take and the the things that you're doing, you're sort of forced to learn some of this stuff. You probably did more spacing and interleaving than you thought you did. You just might not have been doing it as intentionally as if you had known about it and could have sort of scheduled it out. Hi, guys and gals. I just wanted to take a quick moment here to interject and say thank you so much for your support. We really appreciate all of the positive feedback and downloads we've received so far. I know every podcast you listen to probably asks for the same thing, but if you wouldn't mind, take two seconds out of your day, go on Apple Podcasts app or iTunes or wherever you can rate this podcast and leave us a rating. We'd really like to know how to improve, what do you think of it. Feedback is greatly appreciated. All right, back to the show. Huh, good point. Okay, so do we move on to the next subject now? Yeah, so so spacing and interleaving are kind of about like planning and, and when, and retrieval reinforces learning. The remaining three strategies tend to be more about developing understanding. So of course, retrieval practice isn't going to work if you just sit down and stare at a blank sheet of paper and you can't remember everything. So while that one really is kind of one of the best ones and, and my favorite, of course, that's what I do most of my research on. Um, these other strategies have a really good place, especially if you're struggling and need to sort of develop understanding. So elaboration is this idea that we can sort of keep adding things or keep making connections or describe and explain concepts. So elaboration can mean a lot of different things. And I, my dissertation was actually on elaboration where I went through and was looking at all these definitions. And I'm convinced that elaboration is too broad a concept to be overly useful. But specifically, this idea of elaborative interrogation is one that fits within educational settings, and we have some evidence to suggest that 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 one works quite well. Elaborative interrogation is basically asking yourself how and why questions, like how and why things work, and then trying to find the answers to those questions. So it's just, it's just questioning. So if you are learning about enzymes, let's say, I don't know if that's something that you might attack in, in medical school. Biochemistry, like, yes. Okay, it's in my head because I'm writing a food science education journal right now with, um, with a food scientist and some other um, like people in, in our field. And so if you are learning about enzymes, you might ask a number of questions like, well, well, why do we need different types of enzymes and how many, you know, how are the different types of enzymes working together? I, you can tell I don't know anything about enzymes. Different information about pHs, how they might be used, but basically you just keep probing and asking these how and why questions and then trying to find the answers. And if you're working with peers, you can work together to describe and explain. And it basically helps you to develop a deeper understanding of what it is that you're trying to learn. And you can see that ultimately you could work your way up to being able to describe and explain how different concepts work with one another from memory, which would be retrieval practice. Ah, okay. So interrogation is something that I remember trying at times with different subjects. And let's take the, the enzymes in biochemistry. 
but depending on what is being covered in the material and what your background is on the material, it can be very difficult and time consuming mm -hmm. to do the interrogation part. But I can see how being in a group setting, that could definitely decrease the amount of time. You can bounce ideas off each other. And it's really necessary because if you don't learn it properly in biochemistry, then when you get to genetics or pharmacology and pathology of different genes and enzymes and deficient enzymes, you're going to be way behind the curve on those topics. Yeah. And you have to have this deeper understanding. And if you're also using interleaving and like talking about enzymes and then also adding in some of these other things that you'd be learning in biochemistry and making the links between them, that's going to help as well because ultimately enzymes don't live by themselves. They are interacting with other parts of, they're not, they don't exist in a bubble, right? You're going to have to be able to understand how they work with other, with other components. True. Okay. So that's elaboration. And then uh, next we can talk about dual coding. So dual coding is this idea that you can combine visual representations with verbal representations. So this starts to sound like learning styles. And of course, we know from a lot of evidence that learning styles um, is a myth. Certainly, we have preferences, but it's a myth that if we match instruction to those preferences, that we'll learn more. So it doesn't matter if you like visual or you like verbal information. Really, we should all just be trying to combine these representations. And so you can utilize dual coding by trying to find visual representations that um, explain an idea that you already have a verbal description for. Visuals tend to be inherently more concrete, and so that can be very helpful. We learn concrete things uh, better than we can learn abstract things. And then you can sort of go back and forth between the visual representation and the verbal representation and explain how they connect to one another. You might even take one representation, so like the visual one, and then write out in words for yourself what that visual representation is showing. You could go the other way too, where you're trying to draw or sketch a visual representation to go along with some words. And then ultimately, right, you could work your way up to producing these things on your own, which would be retrieval practice. But really, it's just about kind of going back and forth. Now, one thing to note, videos tend to have verbal and visual representations that go along with them, but you can have too much of a good thing. So if they're, if it's going very fast and there's the sort of a lot of maybe words on the screen along with visuals that you're trying to look at or the person's talking and you're trying to read, if there's too much going on, it's going to produce what we might call cognitive overload. That doesn't mean you can't use videos. You just really do have to slow down so that you can really make the connection between the two things. Okay. And I really like the topic of dual coding since we cover a lot of visual mnemonics, visual markers, memory palaces in the show and using these visual aids as retrieval practice and just as a general memory benefit for medical students. So dual coding almost brings a little more science to the art of memory techniques, I feel. Yeah. And one of the things that I know my sister did uh, when she was studying during her first two years of medical school and taking the courses, she'd take dry erase markers and draw these images on her mirror. So her closet doors were sliding doors that had, you know, those full length mirrors on them. And she would draw, I don't know, like pictures of cells and pictures of neurons and different pathways and all these things and mark them with different colors. And then as she was getting ready in the morning, she would kind of walk through the diagram and describe and explain each component from memory using the visual as a cue. 
And it was sort of her way of getting some spaced practice in there and retrieval practice and dual coding while she was, you know, like picking out what she was going to wear and just generally getting ready for the day, sipping her coffee, I'm sure. (laughs) That sounds like a great technique. I wish we had more of that. Uh, Where I was going to school, we struggled to get whiteboard paper to stick on the wall and just kind of mark up the walls with it. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Okay, so we've covered spacing, retrieval, elaboration interleaving, and dual coding. So it sounds like that leaves one more. Yes. So the last one is concrete examples. And I already suggested concrete things are a little bit easier to remember than abstract things. And so concrete examples is really just trying to come up with concrete examples or things that exemplify these abstract ideas. So enzymes, I mean, an enzyme itself is somewhat concrete, but this concept and all the things that you're learning gets to be abstract. So one way of trying to combat some of this would be to come up with your own concrete examples of why, how you would use enzymes as a doctor in the, in the real world, right? Why you would need to know about it for a specific case. And we naturally do tend to come up with concrete examples on our own. This isn't a new idea. And I think most educators use concrete examples. It turns out, though, that we actually need more concrete examples than we think we do. So two is going to be better than one. A lot of times, especially for novices, when we have a concrete example, that concrete thing, because it's easier to remember, we tend to hold on to that as opposed to the underlying abstract idea. I'll take just an example that we use all the time, the idea of scarcity. Scarcity is, of course, this idea of as resources dwindle, that this drives up the cost in, in economics, right? So a concrete example of that might be when you're trying to buy a plane ticket, if you're looking three to four months before uh, you're going to take the flight, there are more seats available, there's less demand, the tickets are probably going to be more reasonable than if you're trying to buy a ticket for a flight one week before the flight when most of the seats have been sold and now spots on the plane are more scarce. So that's a good concrete example, but the problem is a novice who doesn't understand scarcity as well might just remember, okay, scarcity has to do with planes where scarcity has to do with tickets, focusing on that surface feature, that thing that is just the example. It's not about planes or tickets. It's a demonstration of planes or tickets using planes or tickets. And so adding multiple concrete examples, especially with different surface details, can really help. So if we were teaching scarcity, we might use that example about plane tickets. And we might also maybe use an example about natural resources. So during a drought, water becomes scarce. And now it's not really about money anymore. It's about what you're willing to use water on. So when water is scarce, you're going to save the water for cooking, drinking, bathing. It's probably not the time to have a water balloon fight. And depending on the severity of the drought, you might say, forget it. I'm not going to use a sprinkler on the lawn. We're going to save this for the the humans and probably the pets in the house too. Okay. So One example I was thinking of is I frequently, especially in physiology, when studying the lungs, uh, attribute it to like a balloon because the elasticity of the lungs and sort of how it functions. So I'd use that kind of abstract, arbitrary comparison. Um, I thought it was more of a concrete example at the time, but then it's incomplete because you're not just thinking of a balloon in isolation. There are other systems working on it. You have chest compressing down on it. So it's more of a a balloon inside of a container. And I don't know if that's maybe a poor example or if that's similar to it. No, that makes sense. And and really, I mean, anything where you're 
coming up with like case examples or you're, you know, you're given a, this patient is exhibiting these symptoms and this, you know, this is going on in this particular operation. What would you do? Anytime you're thinking about those things, you're basically taking these ideas that you've learned in more abstract settings, using some of that biochemistry and anatomy and all of the things that you've learned and putting them into a real concrete example that you actually might encounter when you're practicing medicine. And so I I think medical students probably use concrete examples a lot. And you definitely use more than just the one concrete example. There's a lot of different cases to exhibit the same sort of idea. And so I think that's one that you're probably using all the time anyway. So it's probably very beneficial to have more experiential learning and being in the clinic more often earlier on, as opposed to just the second two years, which is still pretty common in most medical schools, because you don't see the patients and don't have as many concrete examples of certain diseases and diagnosis at that point. Yeah, yeah, I definitely think probably not, you know, doing the things on your own. (laughs) I guess it depends on how prepared you are. But yeah, uh, observing those types of things, getting even just descriptions of what's going on, those examples early on is going to help. All right. Got it. So do you have any other resources that you might recommend for students, especially any sort of maybe self-assessment tools or anything like that that students could use to make sure they're actually implementing these correctly? The idea is as long as you can grasp what's going on with those strategies, you don't really need a lot of complex materials. Um, I mean, spacing, you could literally drive yourself crazy trying to figure out what the perfect amount of spacing would be or how many times you should switch for interleaving. And I think what we find a lot of times with these strategies is that using the strategies is very beneficial. And then when we try to dig in and say, well, what's the exact optimal way to use the strategy? What's the perfect way to implement that? We can find that some in some situations, some things work better than others, but it's going to depend on the student. It's going to depend on what they're trying to learn. It's going to depend probably even on things like, did you have a complete breakfast this morning? How much sleep have you gotten? And that, of course, changes from day to day. And so really, when we're trying to disentangle what's the perfect, perfect way to use the strategy, we're talking about very small effects. When we're talking about using these strategies compared to not using them, we're talking about huge effects. So I don't really think students should worry too much about making sure that they're using the strategy in necessarily the most optimum way. Just using them and practicing with them and then making adjustments as you see fit is going to be really, really helpful. And, you know, switch it up. You don't need to do all of the strategies all the time, but you can use maybe dual coding with retrieval practice one day. And then another day you could say, let's focus on concrete examples. Um, Really just adding a little bit here and there is going to be really helpful. Okay, so we'll just leave it up to uh, the ever popular free Anki flashcards program to set all that up for us so we don't have to worry about it. Yeah, yeah, that's actually one that I think my sister uses. Um, And I have a podcast episode where I talk to my sister and she mentions a couple things that she uses for dual coding too. I I think she mentioned Picmonic and Sketchy Micro, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, yeah, those sound familiar. Yeah, actually, they're going to be guests coming up on future episodes, too. So they're, they're great resources a lot of students use to get some of the initial visuals down. And then hopefully through some of the trainings they learn through these shows and through other guests, they can also elaborate on it themselves, make it more personal to them and less arbitrary. Yeah. So, I mean, if you have access to these resources, you want to use these resources, I think that's great. But a lot of times when I picture, you know, utilizing these strategies, you know, when I, when I was in school or what we're doing in the lab, just a group of students who are trying to study this information with, you know, some pen and paper and maybe even a whiteboard and a few markers is enough to really utilize all of these strategies together. They can be very low cost. 
Okay. So students find a good group, use a library, go use that whiteboard. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I actually have an entire chapter in the book I'm writing in collaboration with Inside the Boards right now on study skills and mnemonics for med students, a whole chapter on how to form a proper study group and make that as efficient as possible. So that'll be something to look forward to in the upcoming weeks, hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. Bring snacks, drink enough water, you know, do all do all those things that are good for your body because your brain is part of your body. So Yes. <laughs> Okay, so where else can the audience find you and your materials? We're at www.learningscientist.org. We have a lot of free resources there. Um, you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or whatever app you use. And then we also do have a Patreon account where we have some uh, exclusive content, you know, little videos and kind of Q&A sorts of things. But um, those types of things are certainly not necessary. Um, I, I do know because of because of my sister and also having been a graduate student that, you know, sometimes resources are scarce and there's a lot of free resources at learningscientist.org. Great. And do you have any other new projects came out recently? I know there are some books that uh, that have been published in recent times. Yeah. So um, I wrote a book with Dr. Yana Weinstein and she and I had the book illustrated with uh, Oliver Caviglioli, who's a phenomenal illustrator. And I mean, it's basically a picture book about using these strategies. We talk about uh, basic memory principles, and then we talk about basic memory processes, memory, attention, uh, perception, which perception you don't necessarily think of as being a part of the learning process, but it is. And then we talk about each of the strategies and we wrap up with chapters for students, for teachers, for parents. And so um, it's a, it's a, I think, a good little book. It's called Understanding How We Learn, A Visual Guide. Great. I definitely need to check that out too. Some of the uh, online courses that I've been creating could benefit from some of the lessons you teach in there, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. And you, I mean, you can find it on Amazon. It's a Rutledge publication. So, and it's relatively inexpensive. I think they, the paperback is uh, around 26 US dollars. All right. Then I usually like to end these shows with what I call the walk down memory lane, just three quick questions, whatever comes to mind. So first question, is there anything you wish you could remember better? You know, this is going to sound kind of silly, but the first thing that comes to mind is I wish I could remember where my my cell phone was on just like a day-to-day basis. My husband laughs at me so much because I'm constantly, we're getting ready to go somewhere or even just sitting on the couch. And I'm like, where's my phone? Where's my phone? Where did it go? And, you know, maybe it's, that's really basic. And I, I understand the memory processes. I'm not thinking about where I'm setting it down when I set it down. I'm just doing it automatically. And then later on, I have no recollection, but it just drives me nuts at least once a day. Exactly. I keep being asked, wait, don't you do a show on memory? Shouldn't you remember this? I'm like, well, I wasn't putting the effort into it. So no. I teach a learning course where we go through, at least this last time, we went through a book called The Seven Sins of Memory by Dan Schachter. The students really enjoyed it. This sin is absent-mindedness, and it's because you are doing, you're putting a lot of your processes on automatic and not necessarily encoding exactly where you set it down because you're focused on other things. And so absent-mindedness is something that happens to all of us. We cannot possibly focus cognitive energy on every single thing that we do. We, we didn't evolve that way for a reason. And, and so the byproduct is we set things down 
like our keys, our phone, and we have a hard time finding them. Um, That's really why like you should have a spot for your keys so that you know where your keys are. It's just that there's no spot for the phone because you tend to kind of carry it around with you. Decrease that cognitive load. Mm -hmm. Yep, exactly. Question number two, looking back now, is there anything you would have changed about your education your school or your training? You know, probably not. Um, mainly just because I, I, I like my job and, and I like my husband and then I, so I, I kind of like where I ended up. I do kind of wish I had known more about these strategies when I was an undergraduate though. Looking back, I think I probably sort of used some of them. I just didn't realize I was using them and I wasn't as intentional about it. And that makes it a little bit easier for me to kind of relate to students and, and say like, look, I didn't know about this either. Here's, here's something small that you can do. I know it's really hard. Start small and do the best you can. I wasn't a perfect student either. And so I, I think that probably is for the best. Yeah. And you probably don't need to be as intentional, especially in undergrad in comparison to some of the graduate work. Right. And last question, is there anything you wish you did differently about your career? I mean, I can tell you, I can tell you what my, my backup career would have been. If I have to go back and redo it, I would be a kindergarten teacher, hands down. I, when I was in college, I substitute taught as my side job because I could block my classes on certain days and then substitute teach on the other days. And I loved it. And I, with kindergarten, I, it was just so much fun. I loved it. And I loved working with little kids. And I, I really, I guess it's not that far off from my actual job. I'm saying I would teach just a completely different age range. And then I work with teachers, but if I, if I was going to go back and do it again, I'm, I might pick kindergarten. Interesting. That would have been a very different career path. Well, Dr. Megan Samaraki, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Yes. Thank you for having me. This is really fun. One great way to excel in your studies is to download our free PDF of study skills, memory techniques, and other fun tools that you can implement right away and begin accelerating your education. Go to freemeded.org slash medstudent to download our free essentials guide for Read This Before Medical School. You can also purchase the full book with all of our tips, tools, and advice. Read This Before Medical School at your bookstore of choice. And if you've already done that, please do leave a review at freemeded.org slash book review.